The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Hey everybody, welcome to another Tech Check live stream. Uh, I am thrilled to have these two guests with me, Samson Mao, Blockstream CSO. Although Samson, you just announced that you're leaving to focus on nation state Bitcoin adoption. I wanna get into that. We also have Gabor Gerbax, Venek, Digital Asset Strategy Director. Gentlemen, good morning, welcome to you both. Good morning, Deirdre. Hey Deirdre. Okay, we've got the sound working and everything. As always, please, anyone who's watching, I can see that there's a few of you tuning in right now. Please send your comments on Twitter, YouTube, however you're watching, we'll get to them. Um, this is such an important time to be having this discussion. We're talking about it on CNBC, but in shorter segments. So I wanted to do a live screen, live stream to get to sort of the nuances of crypto's role and these rising geopolitical conflicts and tensions that we're seeing. Both of you have such an interesting backstory. So Gabor, I wonder if you could start just by telling us about your background, how this issue is so personal to you and why you sort of, it led to why you got into crypto in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, so um, first of all, I'd like to say that Bitcoin is civilian money technology for wartime. And uh, my family uh, has experience with war wartime. My grandfather uh, has fought in the 1956 revolution when Russian tanks rolled into Budapest. Uh, my parents have grown up under communism. And personally, myself, uh, I've grown up on the border of Hungary and Croatia during the Croatian War of Independence, where you could hear artillery at night. During these times, um, both my parents and grandparents have experienced uh, property confiscation and money being devalued by the day. and. Uh, so for Hungarians and for my family, uh, having money that you can keep that's transferable uh, and, uh, and censorship resistant and non-government issued is an important thing. I also just wanted to add as a background before my grandparents during the interwar war year, uh, the first world war and the second world war, Hungary's currency was uh, as experienced the greatest uh, hyperinflation of all time. Mm -hmm. So you could imagine uh, your local currency adding nine zeros in two weeks. And uh, by 1946, at the end of the war, the Hungarian currency had to introduce uh, a new currency dropping 29 zeros. So hyperinflation, property confiscation, yeah. and war is personal. And that's why I got into Bitcoin. So Gabor, what do you think when you, when you see the role of cryptocurrencies in the current conflict? How does that make you feel? Well, again, uh, to me, the role of cryptocurrency is the safe haven. It's a censorship-resistant uh, and non-sovereign uh, money for everyday people, particularly Bitcoin and, in some ways, stable coins. So uh, I see I see the role uh, of of Bitcoin and stable coins as a way to help everyday people uh, in in a war situation, which we have seen. Uh, yeah. you know, Ukrainians use it, Russians use it, and uh, so I think that's important to help civilians. And this whole idea of a store of value, Samson, I mean, we've talked about it for years now, and it's been a little bit hard to understand, but given its role in this crisis, that case, it's almost like a geopolitical test case for Bitcoin. Would you say that it's passing now, that test? And what are sort of some of the long-term implications of that? 
Well, war and money are inextricably linked together. So historically, war is the time at which gold standards are broken. Um, governments try to inflate the money supply either directly or indirectly, directly through taxation, indirectly through inflation. And we're, we're seeing that again. But war is typically the time that people need money. And if you don't have an apolitical money, it's very easy to uh, inflict collateral damage on people. So for war, there's loss of human life and, of course, loss of livelihood and just uh, destruction of everyone's savings and assets. But then you have the other side of it, which is something like sanctions where you're going after people trying to you know, find all the Russians and block them. But mm -hmm. that's, there's a lot of collateral damage in that area, right? Like the war is not being driven by ordinary people. Like if we go back to Canada as an example, right? Um, I would say Trudeau does not represent the view of most Canadians these days. Right. But if he was to go to war like, and uh, Canada was sanctioned, then you know, ordinary people that have no ability to do anything uh, would also be suffering too. And we see that, right? People are going after um, Russians. Uh, they're trying to close down their accounts on crypto exchanges. Um, they're trying to get them blocked everywhere. But it's not the Russian people. It's the, yes. a, a few people that are launching the war. <laughs> That's a really important distinction. One that I think maybe is lost in some of the headlines, some of the conversations is sort of this idea of you know, taking all Russians off crypto platforms versus ones that are sanctioned, right? Ones that are sort of on this blacklist. And we wouldn't see a bank, you know, limit the ability, the banking accounts for all Russians, but they do comply with sanctions. And so as we see a lot of the crypto platforms, you know, adhere to these sanctions, how does that guy, how does that make you guys feel? Like Gabor, let's come to you first. Do you think that crypto platforms should be complying with sanctions for these individuals, the Russians that are on those lists? I think they should. Uh, so it depends on your jurisdiction, but in general, they should comply. And what I can and should say is that cryptocurrency platforms and uh, stablecoins are already complying with regulations that are local to them. So in many ways, they are sort of just like banks and they're already complying. However, the underlying technology for Bitcoin and some of the stable coins at the same time enables civilians to transact. So that's the important part. You can maintain sanction compliance and, and, and regulatory compliance while actually saving uh, civilians uh, from collateral damage. So I think that's the point of, of there's, it's the best of both worlds. You can comply while also helping civilians. Samson, though, at the, you are what I would consider a Bitcoin maximalist. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's you know, like fair. That? <laughs> and, <Okay. laughs> and to go back to your topic, like what is crypto's role? I think it's more what is Bitcoin's role in geopolitics? Well, okay, but, but that's what I'm wondering from you is that should Bitcoin be free of any interference or should these platforms be subject to the same regulations that banks are? Well, the thing is, Bitcoin is free from interference. It's apolitical money that nobody can The exchanges, control. I'm sorry. You're well, right. Yeah. The exchanges have to comply, but the exchanges are not the only way to exchange Bitcoin for fiat currencies. You can use peer-to-peer uh, -peer decentralized exchanges. There's numbers of ways. You can meet people on the street and trade too. But I think the key there is that you have this backbone, this distributed, immutable, permissionless ledger that is censorship resistant, and it's free for anyone to use. Um, once you go down that route of trying to find people and isolate people and, and you know, group them as the bad guys, 
that gets into very murky waters, right? Mm -hmm. We had that in Canada too, where if you're a protester, your accounts will be frozen, right? And it got to the point where if you were a relative or connected to someone that was at the protest, your accounts will be frozen too. And I, I think that just illustrates the case of why you need sound money, why you need something like Bitcoin that nobody can control at the end of the day. Exchanges but are merely a convenience. Very different cases there, though, right? You have Canadian protesters, but then in the case of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, you have Putin's inner circle, oligarchs. Is it not a good thing if they can be sanctioned, if their use of crypto on some of these trading platforms is limited? Samson, do you allow for that? Or no, do you see them both as sort of similar? Well, I think if they're on a list and they're close to the inner circle, then you can go for that. But I, I agree with Gabor. You don't want to just block all Russians from, from a platform yeah. and, and lock them out of the financial system. And I think that's why Bitcoin does exist. And that's why you need that permissionless currency. Why, why are people, Gabor, even calling for this, right? You wouldn't ask a bank to freeze all the bank accounts of Russian people. So do you think that crypto is still sort of subject to, I mean, obviously it is subject to different standards. Where does that end? Do you think that that sort of nuance is getting across? And to me, it signals that uh, so this whole uh, fact that crypto exchanges are, and stable coins and, and, and service providers are getting a call from regulators just signals how mature this, uh, this space is. So, um, you know, they're getting calls like banks um, to, to implement sanctions. But again, the reality of this all is they already are implementing as a sanction. So I don't think that there's a double standard against Bitcoin or crypto. Mm -hmm. uh, regulators calling uh, on uh, crypto exchanges and service providers alike shows that Bitcoin and stablecoins are a mature asset. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, Samson, let me ask you as sort of the Bitcoin maximalist, what does this current moment in time, the volume surging and trading of Bitcoin, also ETH and the stablecoins, what does that say about other cryptocurrencies where the use case, yes, is very different. But do you think that we could see almost a flushing out of different coins? Well, I think Bitcoin is the only one that really matters. Um, a lot of the other cryptocurrencies are trying to push their affinity scam right now. Like uh, I think Polkadot or something is trying to get Ukraine to open a wallet. But, you know, the, these things are all centralized and they're not going to uh, stand the stress of being really tested, right? Most of them can be shut down if you just shut down AWS or Infira. So these are not censorship resistant monies. And I think at this time they, they can survive because nobody understands it well enough. But when everything is put to the test, only Bitcoin can survive. Well, what about Gabor? What about the role of Ethereum? Do you think that its use case is rising, becoming more similar to Bitcoin? I mean, we've talked about this previously uh, with other guests on the show that it's starting to trade a lot more like Bitcoin, like a store of value because you have institutional investors coming into the space. Uh, no, I don't think so personally. Uh, I think you know, Bitcoin is money for wartime, as I mentioned, so its use case is rising. Ethereum is a smart contract platform. I would credit that you know they have raised money as well for Ukraine. Uh, their founder has uh, stepped up uh, as well and expressed you know his opinion. I'd also say you know Justin Sun from Tron, who is now working with the uh, World Trade Organization, stepped up and called on diplomats this whole situation. So, so I think uh, what's interesting from outside Bitcoin, from other cryptocurrencies, uh, and you know that includes FTX and Solana and some of the others, is that. People are stepping up and try to wield their influence uh, to give some sort of solution to conflicts. 
However, I would say, you know, in the background, Bitcoin is quietly actually solving the problem. So that's what really matters, in my opinion. I would not discredit anyone who is trying to help and solve the problem. And, and you know, I applaud that. However, right. I think to Samson's point, the technology uh, is, you know, for Bitcoin is working and is actually solving the problem right now. And Samson, sometimes you'll hear even on our air that Bitcoin is being used to evade sanctions, but it's truly not that simple, right? The liquidity is still, wouldn't, wouldn't allow it to be so. Why don't you dispel sort of that, those, that thinking for us, for our audience? Well, Bitcoin market cap is still tiny. And yeah. if you're a nation state with trillions and trillions under your control and you need to evade sanctions, there's just not enough uh, Bitcoin right now at the current price to do so. But I think down the road, that could be definitely... A possibility which some people may not like but i think it's more important that money is money and it is not under the, under the control of any any country or political party or any small group of individuals it needs to be available for everyone and, and back to give worse point like yes some of those uh, other cryptocurrency projects are trying to help but they're also trying to help themselves by pumping their own bags okay so let me ask you guys i want to move on to stable coins but first what do you think is behind Bitcoin's rise over the last few days? Is it being seen as a store of value? Do people think that it can be used around sanctions or is it simply because of the currency devaluation we're seeing in, in these countries, Ukraine and Russia? So uh, my view is that people are simply ordinary uh, civilians are buying Bitcoin. They're afraid that they, particularly in Ukraine, um, in Russia, but also in Eastern Europe and other places, people are afraid that their banks and currencies will not operate because of war conditions. That's exactly what Bitcoin and stable coins are made for. Like th th this is the sign. So it's just simply purchasing uh, Bitcoin because of the times that uh, we live in. I wanted to just quickly add that, um, you know, if you are people from an institutions, particularly who used to be buying gold during war times and, and during uh, periods of uh, heightened conflict, uh, they might rethink that because and, and nation states too, because if you are a nation state and you're, if your central bank is holding gold in Ukraine today, uh, then you might want to think of uh, you know, what happens if the Russians raid your gold banks or if, mm -hmm. if a, a gold uh, wallets. And uh, what happens uh, if a foreign nation sanctions your gold uh, abroad, which happened with Maduro and Venezuela and a number of other nations who held gold and wallets. So that's, that's much more difficult to do with Bitcoin. So, so my prediction is that in the next 10 years, particularly Visegrad and uh, Eastern European countries yeah. will add Bitcoin to their balance sheets from a central bank level. I don't, I don't think this is far-fetched and we're going to see smaller nations safeguarding their wealth um, in, in a better way. Right. Yeah. At the same time, though, Samson, we have seen a more call it orderly rise in gold. Bitcoin, of course, still early days and still very volatile, but we've seen gold still sort of keep that store of value status. What do you attribute sort of the surge in Bitcoin over the last few days, 15% plus in one day? What do you attribute that to? Are retail investors, you know, individuals buying, is that enough to make such a big move? It's got to be institutions in here too, right? In Wales. I would agree more with Gabor that it is ordinary people understanding Bitcoin. Can they I move the price that much? Yes. Like <laughs> if you look at Dogecoin, you just have a bunch of retail people moving the price and it can go but to like 70 market cents, caps right? are different. Yeah. But I, I think it's still the ordinary people that move the price in this case. Um, in the last four weeks, we probably learned more about Bitcoin's value proposition than in the past four years. Mm -hmm. Like everywhere you look around the uh, every under every corner around every corner, it's like, you know, Bitcoin fixes this Bitcoin fixes that 
you know, you can use Bitcoin to store your money. And, and that's why stable coins are trading at a premium in Ukraine right now. It's, uh, I, I think it was four to five percent. And there was a time that you couldn't even get USDT if you wanted it. So it just goes to show people want to be able to save their money. They need that store of value. And in times of uncertainty, Bitcoin is that answer. And I think there was a large misunderstanding. People thought Bitcoin was a risk on asset just because yeah. it was tracking stocks and the like. But it is. It looks like that until it isn't. And I think we've found the answer now, which is Bitcoin is a risk off asset. Yeah, you know, I, I, I agree with you, Samson. I think that we've seen more about its use case in the last few days than we have in, in years. It's so fascinating to watch this evolve. You mentioned stable coins. Let's get to the role that they play, peg, that they play. And for our audience who may not be super familiar, though I think they are, with stable coins, they are pegged to the US dollar, part of the crypto ecosystem. And USDT, USDC have seen their volumes absolutely surge. Uh, in some cases, more than twice that of Bitcoin, especially ruble-denominated volume. What role is it playing, Gabor? Let's go to you first. Yeah, so um, I think you know about 80% of the world or 70% of the world today is still using the dollar uh, as a hard currency. Uh, so stable coins are, you know, similarly to Bitcoin, people and specifically Tether internationally uh, are being bought just as a you know, a safe haven against a potential devaluation in local currency, um, such like such as the the ruble. And so, um, to me, the, the role that they are playing, if stable coins are still accessible in in various jurisdictions, subject to local laws and and, and regulations, but you are able to access them without the banking system, which is important because the banking system, uh, as things are getting sanctioned, they're extremely busy largely unreliable. So I think I, will, I see stablecoin and, and Tether specifically uh, being picked up internationally outside the United States uh, as an alternative to US dollar access because it's a completely different railway from SWIFT. It's also independent from Eastern influence. So it's sort of like a neutral ground uh, that um, in my view, smaller countries who don't necessarily want to play in the Western system or the Eastern system directly will adopt quicker than some of the SWIFT alternatives. So I understand sort of the convenience and the uh, advantages of using a stable coin, but Samsung, it's kind of, you know, it's a misrepresentation to say that they're kind of like the U.S. dollar, right? Which in many cases they're thought of because they're pegged to the U.S. dollar. And we just, we've talked about this before, don't know exactly what it's backed by. So, you know, People who are going into USDT right now, they're not really sure what they're getting and how that's guaranteed. Well, I would disagree. I think uh, people know what they're getting into. USDT, much like every other stablecoin, is publishing attestations. No, no stablecoin right now has an audit. So we're waiting for the first one to produce it. But I think the challenge is finding an auditor that will audit a stablecoin. And that's a cross-disciplinary thing that many auditors are afraid to take on. But they're all producing the attestations and they're all more or less regulated in the same manner, either registration or regulation. And I believe that USDT has a massive footprint worldwide. USDC is more for U.S. consumers and U.S. Um, traders, I would say. But internationally, USDT has been the, the base of most cryptocurrency trading and it has a far bigger pool of liquidity. So it's not a surprise that uh, people in the Ukraine or anyone in that region is trying to get USDT just because it is it has so much utility for them. And sorry, what is the utility over USDC? Is it because you know USDC is going to go public in the US, so it could be 
subject to different regulations? Is that is that why you think USDT is is surging more uh, think, than Circle? Well, Gabor, you can you can chime in on this after, but I think it has more to do with just the liquidity. Like most trading pairs have a USDT pair, liquidity. and even before the the conflict came up. USDT was heavily used in cross-border trade. Um, you know, Russia and China had a massive corridor of USDT, USDT trade, and it's just quite big all over, every, everywhere, except for the US. Gabor, actually, actually, I wonder too, do you think that these stable coins, auditing is an issue? Um, you're with VanEck, right? So you guys have put Bitcoin futures ETFs on the market. Uh, do you talk to auditors, the big four that say that they just, why can't they audit USDT reserves? Yeah, uh, two points. To first point uh, to you, Deidre, uh, is yes, I talk with uh, big four auditors and they are in the process of figuring out how to uh, audit reserves. It's actually difficult uh, running nodes, reconciling assets across different blockchains and the international cross-border nature of it. So the, these firms are, are working on and they're work, working very closely with companies. It is the industry standard to produce attestations um, from, from different companies like the big four, a little bit smaller companies because the big four is just kind of not ready. But that's the standard. That's what all stable coins do including Tether, USDC, Terra, and some of the other ones as well. So I, again, I don't see any issues with that. It's just uh, sort of like big four comp, um, auditors are figuring this out. Samson, um, do you do you and you know Tether executives have open conversations with executives at the big four about their readiness, how you guys can help them in preparation for being able to audit Tether reserves? Well, that's not what I'm getting into. I'm getting into nation state Bitcoin adoption. I don't want to get into auditing. <laughs> okay. I but I know, but you said you but you said that they're not ready to audit. So I just wonder, and I know you're close with the tether execs, if they're sort of actively working with the big four to get there. Because honestly, it seems to me we're talking about the importance of stable coins in this current environment. And if people are leaning on them, we're seeing those volumes surge, we're seeing the market caps expand, that it would be good for the stablecoin companies to assure their users that they're safe investments, right? Isn't it all kind of connected, especially when we talk about nation states adopting yeah, Bitcoin? Definitely. I think the big four are just, uh, I don't know, like how to say it <laughs> politely. They're not well equipped to deal with new things like this. And it's going to be smaller firms that are more agile and and more technology technologically savvy that will be able to tackle it. Okay, but I, I would say like in in maybe five years we'll see big four firms auditing stable coins. I, I struggle to understand how it's that different from a money market fund, but I know <laughs> Samsung. We've had conversations in the past. You're not here to talk about that. I do want to continue to talk about what we're seeing in this current moment. Um, and I guess Gabor, let me let me come back to you. Where do you think when we talk about progress for cryptocurrencies? And Samsung said, you know, we've seen more, you know, understanding of its use case in the last four days in the last four years. Where does it go from here? Do you think that this adoption continues? Do you think that prices continue to rise? Uh, so I, I'm in no position to sort of comment on the price uh, <laughs> rises, but I think adoption will continue, certainly. And I'll see Bitcoin, stable coins and cryptocurrencies generally being adopted by, again, everyday citizens. Then 10 years from now, we'll see maybe even I think maybe closer to five, uh, three, five, we'll see central banks putting uh, Bitcoin on their balance sheet uh, and uh, as well as companies putting Bitcoin on, on their balance sheet. If you see it today, if you look at the uh, Ukraine's uh, 
national Twitter account, they tagged the Bitcoin and stablecoin kind of address, uh, crypto address on their uh, Twitter account. So there's there's no, uh, and we've seen market making firms and large trading firms saying that we have no choice but to make markets and trade uh, Bitcoin and digital assets in general. Uh, the reason for that is now nation states are dealing with, with that. You know, El Salvador is, uh, has adopted uh, Bitcoin as a legal uh, tender and issuing bonds in it. We'll see multiple countries doing this. And, you know, Samsung in particular is going gonna, is gonna to probably do some great things on that front. Uh, and, uh, and so, um, so again, I think companies have no choice but put a small allocation, 1% to 3% uh, to their uh, portfolios, just like they do with gold. And I wanted to just highlight this, just this is not a price prediction, but uh, about 0.7%, um, so slightly over half a percent of all managed portfolios uh, in the world hold gold as a safe haven asset uh, on their portfolios. Uh, so that, and that amounts to 12, roughly 11, 12 trillion dollars of gold in market value. Bitcoin is not, not even close to that adoption curve. As we see Bitcoin being adopted, now, I, my personal belief is that Bitcoin can match gold in market capitalization, which would be another you know, 10x plus. Uh, and this is you know, not crazy as we see mm -hmm. the Ukrainians, the Russians are not asking for gold. <laughs> They're asking for Bitcoin. Right. The, their reserves still largely in gold. Uh, you know what, guys, we have gone 25 minutes. I didn't even realize I just got a text from my producer saying we've gone way over our time. I could probably and you guys continue to chat. Samson, any last word from you before we sign off? And I hope to continue this discussion, too, by the way. Yeah, I think Bitcoin will continue to continue to appreciate. And I think Bitcoin nation state adoption is going to only keep accelerating. The people will see what is happening in El Salvador. People are starting to understand why they need Bitcoin. I've seen uh, environmentalists that were previously against Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining just do a, a 180 and say, okay, well, actually, no, I think we need Bitcoin now. So the future is bright for Bitcoin. Yeah, well, guys, I'm so glad that we had this discussion. It is such an important topic and something that's unfolding in real time. Um, the crypto adoption is just, it's incredible. So thank you so much for being here. Hope to talk to you guys again soon. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.